You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, a Middle East peace conference gathers in Warsaw to hear the thoughts of Ivanka Trump's husband. So expect everything to be sorted out by the weekend. My guests Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Australia's government forced by Australia's parliament to soften its line on asylum seekers, at least slightly, the United States increasing conviction that Russia and China are seeking to weaponise space, and as today's Brexit headline is provided by overheard Brussels bar chat, what's the strangest places our guests have picked up a story? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist, and Robert Fox, defence editor with the Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we start in Warsaw, which today began hosting a two-day Middle East peace conference. The failure of this wingding to command global headlines, except on this programme, says something about the general level of optimism attending any such enterprise, especially when one of the keynote speakers is US point man on the peace process, Jared Kushner, whose qualifications for the job do not extend far past his marriage to the president's daughter. However, some relatively serious personages will be attending, including US Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and a smattering of Arab ministers. Terry, first of all, is this a complete waste of everybody's time? Uh, it does seem a bit strange to have a big sort of conflab on the Middle East where you've got upwards of 60 countries attending, where you're only effectively talking to half the side of any particular Middle Eastern story. I mean, so you've got the Israelis there, but no Palestinians. You've got no Iranians. You've got no Lebanon. You've got no Turkey. But yet you do have Saudi, the UAE, and, and as you say, you know, other Middle Eastern countries. So it doesn't sound like a summit that is designed at getting answers to any particular, any of the many, many <laughs> tricky questions that there are to resolve. It looks more like, and from the pictures that we're seeing from Warsaw of kind of rallies about free Iran and so forth going on in Warsaw at the moment, that it's much more about putting one side of the story, in particular about putting US views of Iran out to sort of a bigger audience and also to, and just trying to almost, you know, create splits where there already are loads of splits, for instance, between within the EU and with between different countries in Europe, which I'm not sure that anybody needs any more of that kind of thing as a, as a way to any kind of solution. Uh, Robert, we will get on to the Iran angle presently, but how excited are you personally uh, to hear what Jared Kushner has to say about Middle East peace tomorrow. We, he, he is, of course, the person who is, uh, we are told, was going to come up with the Trump White House's Middle East peace plan. They've been a bit quiet about what it actually is. You said it. We've been promised this peace plan by Palestinians and uh, Israelis since Trump came into office, and then he appointed his son-in-law as the point man, as you said. And we've heard about this, and we've heard about it, and there's been nothing to show for it. Um, Kushner is trying to shore up what credibility there remains by saying, oh, he will give hints about it here. Nobody is expecting uh, too much because of the problem also where Israel is concerned is Israel is in the middle of quite a fierce general election campaign where um, in uh, an unexpected way Netanyahu is on the defensive because people are 
interested in the new kid on the block, the former IDF uh, chief. There have been former IDF chiefs uh, running for office. Um, some of the uh, more Zionist uh, comment has been, oh, they've been pretty unsuccessful. I think that's untrue. I think some of the generals have been very um, very effective, highly intelligent politicians. Eh? This, this would make one. Benny Gantz would be the third chief of the general staff to, I think, have yeah, been prime yeah. minister. Yeah, but he is, he is saying things, and it, and, and it is very interesting, and he is putting, he is putting um, salt on the tail of Netanyahu. And the other thing, if you're going to talk about Iran, if you're going to talk about Israel and, and, and the peace process, you've got to address, because the serious, almost to a man, to a woman, all the serious Israeli press is very, very worried about it. You've got to address Gaza. And, we, we, uh, and I'm not entirely sure that Mr. Kushner uh, wants to do that. I think this is a very unfortunate cosmetic exercise on the part of the White House because there have been so many missteps and misspeakings between uh, Pompeo, um, uh, um, John Bolton, as well as uh, the president, all seeming to say different things about Iran, Syria, peace in the region and so on. Um, Terry, is there, is there another subtext to this in the fact that it is being hosted in Warsaw? Is is this Poland trying to either curry favour with the United States or make a point to Russia or what? Is the, is the location significant? Uh, yes, I think it is, because I think uh, probably what this choice of location is trying to do is, on the one hand, partly, yes, send messages to Russia, but partly also send messages to the rest of the EU. I mean, you know, uh, Federica Mogherini has decided not to go to this meeting. Uh, France and Germany have sent only junior ministers and officials. Um, Britain is obviously now semi-detached from the EU anyway. Has Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, is going to the meeting, but he's going to be leaving early. He's not sort of making a, a very big play of it. So I think it partly is yes, trying to appeal, say, look, you know, it, particularly with respect to Iran, um, the EU has been taking a very different view from the US. And I think it's almost trying to say, look, there are other views within the EU which are not the same as the views of the big EU countries of the, the France and the Germany. And that maybe, you know, maybe they're hoping that they can try and influence the EU's relationship with Iran, not only through the sort of the stick, if you like, of ex the possibly extending sanctions, extending sanctions on oil exports and, and so forth, but actually trying to say, well, look, you know, there are other views within Europe rather than the ones that, that tend to predominate. Uh, Robert, is there at least something good about the fact that, you know, even if they only bump into each other by accident, there will be Israeli and Arab ministers under the same, more or less under the same roof in, in a reasonable in reasonable numbers for arguably the first time since the, the Madrid talks of the early 1990s? I think it is time for a reality check. But uh, the interesting point, I think, about the EU is um, what will come to the fore with the Americans. The Americans don't like it is that when they cancel the, the American participation, participation in the JCPOA, the, 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 the nuclear arms program um, restriction treaty of 2015, and threaten sanctions on anybody getting involved in it, including continuing to trade with, with Iran and, and in breach of this. And the EU has been pretty successful in getting round it. And that's 
that's a serious point. The EU comes into play in another respect too, just having been in the region quite recently, is that they've all got fingers in the wind trying to work out what's going to happen. And it's Russia, as well as the United States, for goodness sake, um, they're looking to the EU to put up an enormous fund to rebuild Syria. And the EU, I think, very intelligently has not come forward with that. And it's actually on that plane, I think, that Federica Mogherini has stayed away. No, we're not ready for that yet. We're not going to do the deal in your terms. But let's say, well, let's let the other shoe drop. The meeting I would really like to be at is the meeting in Moscow between Putin and, and, and Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, because they must be plotting the next moves. And it's how they arrange Syria, and they're, they're, they're in the driving seat. They're running well, it obviously. now. And the, the, Moscow is now the prime international interlocutor. Ask any serious Israeli uh, about that. Forget about America the unreliable, which is what Trump has proved, proved himself to be. Yes, I mean, this is barely even a Chomkin village. It's barely a facade, because you can see all the way through it. Okay, well, let's move on slightly, well, in fact, quite a great deal in terms of geography, and look at Australia, a country which, lacking serious problems, enjoys amusing itself by pretending that inconveniences are crises. Australia's approach to boat-borne asylum seekers has been especially noteworthy for this tendency and has reared up again. MPs over the objections of the government of this week's Prime Minister Scott Morrison have passed a bill which will make it easier for asylum seekers being held offshore to receive medical treatment should they need it in Australia proper. At present, roughly 1,000 people are held in detention centres in Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Reports of illness among them, physical and mental, have been common. As many as 300 might be entitled now to a medical transfer. Um, Terry, this case, well, this saga in Australia, um, and indeed similar sagas elsewhere, they all boil down, I think, uh, to one key question, the answer to which I've, I've never satisfactorily been able to answer to myself, which is, what does any nation owe someone who just turns up? Oh, give me the hard question that you can't answer for yourself and I have to answer it exactly. straight away like that. Uh, I suppose we have established over since at least the end of the Second World War, probably if not before, that you owe them, if not, you know, kindness. You owe them basic standards of humanity and treating people, you know, as you would like to be treated if you found yourself in, in the same situation, and particularly after the end of the Second World War, and you had, you know, huge movements of people uh, across Europe, and that's partly what sort of established a lot of these principles. Now, the trouble is that so many countries, and it's not obviously only Australia, you look at the US, you look at the way that Europe is... Uh, dealing with refugees, you know, washing up from the, on the Mediterranean and, and in the Channel as well. Um, and people are now saying, well, that's not necessarily a given anymore and that you don't have to provide people with, you know, these basics of, of health care, of somewhere to stay, of, you know, some kind of, some kind of security. And now maybe you could say that, you know, these are different circumstances these days. But, you know, it's, it's just a question of, of basic humanity. And yes, it's a bigger policy question as well. But you just, you know, you can't lose sight of that. You know, how would you like to be treated if you found yourself in a similar situation? The retort to that, of course, Robert, and this is, I, I think that the tricky part of it, at least the bit I struggle with personally, is I agree with everything Terry's just said. But the trouble is, if you respond like that, it does rather encourage more to come. And the, the unarguable, I think, about Australia's harder line, and it has been harsh, verging on cruel, 
is that it's kind of worked. 25,000 people or thereabouts arrived by boat in 2012 to, to 2013, 17 last year. Yes, that that is interesting, and I don't know about um, that regional uh, context. Um, there is a parallel case going on in Italy at the moment. Indeed because so. Because Matteo Salvini, the interior minister, is being charged. There's a, a, a prosecution case has been prepared. Whether it will go forward is open to question. But in, in Sicily, for kidnap of 177 uh, asylum seekers and refugees who we refused allowed to allow landing rights to. And what are the rights and obligations? They are extremely compl- complicated, as Terry said, because they come out of the Charter of Human Rights, in other words, the founding charter of the UN. They come out of humanitarian rescue at sea, too. You are obliged under uh, 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 under the norms of um, international activity uh, or, or on the sea to rescue somebody in distress. An obligation that, an obli- sa- that sailors take extremely seriously, seriously for and, obvious and, reasons. And you can't ignore them. There is that. And then there is, as Terry rightly said, the whole issue of asylum, political and humanitarian, and they're more or less uh, the same thing. These are completely unresolved and um, it's got terribly messed up in in Italy where the the case is still yes we're not seeing such huge numbers as we once seen but they're pretty substantial numbers only way ahead of your uh, uh, Australian numbers but the crisis there has moved from acute to very seriously chronic and it's going to go on and on for really quite some time and I would slightly take issue with you I don't think asylum uh, seekers, people are pre- preparing to do the dreadful journey, particularly in this weather, from Libya or Tunisia to uh, Malta or, or Sicily or, 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 or southern Italy. They don't read newspapers. The information comes through very strangely enhanced rumour and you know folk memory. And it's, it's a tremendous desire. I've talked to an awful lot um, in Italy as, as to why they came highly articulate that they could be, because obviously I've been talking to uh, Somalis, to uh, Libyans and so on, in very good Italian, because these Mm. are very, very educated. And and the psychology of migration as well and and seeking refugee is is a huge and colossal issue. And what what really makes me despair, I mean, I am in the same boat as you, was that when they came up with... um, the uh, common protocol um, on on migration, uh, the CPM, that was decided by 164 UN nations agreed uh, in December last year, got very little coverage, by the way. But the figures were the people at risk in and around the region were es- estimated at about potentially Africa, the Middle East and the shores of, of Asia at uh, between a quarter and a third of a billion and they're moving. They're beginning to move and feeds into, I don't want to sort of go, continue page 194, but it being fed into because they're very worried about the catalytic driver of environmental and climate change. And you look at the little spat about whether the Italians should have kept asylum seekers and refugees in Italy or shoved them over the border to France, this thing that's a now a diplomatic dispute with ambassadors being withdrawn between Italy and France. It's just not addressing the problem at all. And it's a huge, uh, a huge one. 
and you're going to get um, siege Britain going to, bre- uh, going to Brexit, thinking it can get out of this. No, nobody in the developed world is going to escape from this. And they haven't come, I think they haven't even got to the beginning of an answer to it yet. I, I suspect that's probably true. Uh, Terry, on and by far the least important aspect of this story, but just in terms of uh, domestic politics and the, and the protocols of that, a, a, a defeat for Scott Morrison's government, and I think the first such defeat on a significant bill by a sitting Australian government since 1941. Uh, when Arthur Fadden resigned after a budget vote, and I am sad and friendless enough that I didn't need to look that up. But, but should should Morrison quit? I mean, not for all the difference it makes, really. I mean, there's there's an election due before May, which he isn't well, going about, to win. So. I was about to say. I mean, presumably this obviously, you know, part of the context of this is another Australian election due within a few months, and you know, obviously people are seeing. A this vote and and his reaction to it and and suggesting that he can reopen the whole the Christmas Island camps and so forth is part of an election thing. I mean, to be honest, I, I find it hard to keep track of who's the Australian Prime Minister at any given time because you do they do change quite often. It's got to be said they it's do. Gotta, I, I'm, I'm, I am vaguely so worried my number is coming up. <laughs> so I would kind of think you know they, they, they do seem to have political crises that, that result in a change of Prime Minister. You know, uh, more often, well, quite a lot more often than the, than often. Happens, I think but, you've really got a point about the dysfun- dysfunction of Western democratic politics that people don't consider resigning. May, Mrs. May, in this country, loses she the lost by, by a lot more than by Scott an Morrison. Awful <laughs> lot, by a record whopping amount, by a cricket score amount. 230, Did I she think, consider if resigning? Says. Yet, not a, not a smidgen. And uh, I think if you're putting uh, your finger on the dysfunction, of the Westminster model of, of, of a parliamentary democracy, yeah, we got a big problem because people, you know, who vote as schmoters, you know, why, why should we bother with I mean, with I, 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 yeah. beside for anything else, I, I don't know what Morrison's hanging on for. I mean, he's already <laughs> outlasted Arthur Fadden, so there's that. And Arthur, there's a, there's a suburb in Canberra named after Fadden. I'm pretty sure he was on a stamp at one point. I mean, you know, you get all that. You're Prime Minister. It, it doesn't really matter how long. Anyway, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori house with me andrew miller terry stiasny and robert fox coming up next could space become a battlefield for a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business culture and design not to mention fashion travel and much more subscribe today and join the world of monocle as a valued subscriber you'll get a 10 percent discount in all monocle shops and our online store You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox. Now, more assiduous chroniclers of the whims of US President Donald Trump may just about recall Space Force, a putative sixth branch of the US military about which he seemed priapically excited for about 20 minutes a few months back. Space Force and the uniforms Trump doubtless intends to design personally may meander back into his consciousness following the release of a Pentagon report warning that Russia and China both have malign ambitions in that realm. 
up to and including anti-satellite missiles and satellite-mounted laser weapons, which, in fairness, sound pretty cool. Um, Robert, China is unimpressed by this report. Foreign Ministry spokesperson uh, Hui Chunying uh, said, first of all, I want to make it clear that outer space belongs to all mankind. It is not exclusively owned by any one country, and especially not the private property of the US. She's not wrong about that much, is she? Exactly. And uh, But I think that the horse has bolted from the stable. If, if, if you're Bolted a, a long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> a, a huge. I mean, further ever than even the imagination of Stephen Hawking can no, reach a, to. But it, am it, am it, I going to rise above a space horse joke? I'm not. <laughs> no, no, no. no but the... the, um, the uh, but the model, of course, is the Antarctic Treaty, that you could have uh, an agreed peaceful zone. That's gone. You know, is there the weaponization of space? I thought you were going to ask me. Yes. It, but and just the, on the Antarctic Treaty, is there no prospect of that? Because China and Russia did try to float something of that sort in 2008, I think, which the US were not keen on. Yeah, I think the problem is the US. I think it is one of these things where the UN really could lend its good offices and you could still point, you know, whatever, there are tiny breaches and so on. But there are great success. The, the, the Antarctic Treaty has been a huge success. It hasn't really been militarized, although military personnel tend to dog sled and, and ski jump and goodness knows what. And it, and it hasn't been nuclearized. And even the Americans were told to take a nuclear nuclear reactor off the thing. It was purely there for, for civil and, 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 and uh, uh, domestic heating uh, reasons. No, I think the prospect of the new spectra of weaponry really say that you're going to need the space dimension. And it is things like lasers and uh, being able to monitor and shoot down uh, missiles. Um, it is part of, and I think this is why America was so reluctant about it, it is anyway part of their calculation in, in ballistic missile missile defense. Where do you draw the line? Where is, a, where is something just a sensor and not a weapon? Sensors are weapons uh, th- th- these days, and we're going into new dimension, and I'm afraid whatever it is, and it may be Pegasus, has bolted well and truly on this one. Uh, Terry, the, the same uh, Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said that China up holds the peaceful use of outer space and opposes weaponizing outer space or an arms race there. Um, Is that, however, a sentiment we would trust any further than we could launch it? Well, no, I think everybody is after being it. I mean, it was interesting that you pointed out that line earlier about uh, China saying this is not the private property of the US. And one of the things we've got to remember here is actually there is an awful lot of private property up in space. There's an awful lot of commercial satellites that are up there. And Indeed. we actually, whether whichever country we're from, we all rely on those. And, and as I looked into this, I found the interesting thing, we kind of all have this idea of space, warfare through space as being missiles, as being, you know, Reagan and Star Wars in the 1980s and sort of all the, you know, the films and everything that built on that. But actually, one of the things that's most important at the moment is the kind of the cyberspace threats and the idea of electronic warfare and the idea that you don't actually need to although there are weapons you don't need to shoot anything down no. you can just turn off our gps yeah. you can just jam all our phone signals and GPS you can just originally was a military system yeah. yeah so if you do that i mean you know if you wanted to bring london to a halt look at what happened the other day when one of the phone networks went down and everybody was wandering around going i can't get my emails i don't have carry a map anymore i don't have anything on me you know there I, was, are serious I was just going to military... suggest contriving a light dusting of snow <laughs> on a railway track Applica- in essex there, but there are quite serious 
military applications of how you can, you know, interfere with people's uh, computer systems and things, which, which would bring any country to a halt just as effectively. And I think that, you know, we've seen with, you know, with China particularly that that kind of intelligence warfare, I don't know what you call it exactly, or cyber warfare, is also one of the things that people are most concerned about. Um, Robert, is, is Trump's missile defence system, which I think is part of the reason the United States is concerned about what Russia and China are doing. Is, is, I mean, Terry mentioned there Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, as it became known, Strategic Defense Initiative, I think was the formal mm-hmm. title. It has Have advances in technology since the 1980s made that idea any more or less plausible than it was then? Or, or for the reasons Terry suggests, would it be a, a massive, not so much space horse as space white elephant? No, I, I think that there's a lot of investment in R&D going into it. And it's interesting that China has taken this line. I think China, obviously, from a million and one different uh, motivations, has to be taken seriously. And I think they should be taken, the, 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 the Chinese Beijing must be taken seriously. And I think you've got to, this is how the Antarctic Treaty emerged, after a series of conferences. And I think they've got to talk to the Chinese about it. The Chinese are so dominant in communication, not least in Europe. It is a major, if not the major communication partner in Europe now. Okay. well, finally tonight, Brexit. Days to go, 44. Clues as to what that is actually going to mean, none. Unless we have been inadvertently offered one. A report doing the rounds today claims that a journalist overheard the UK government's chief Brexit negotiator, Ollie Robbins, in a Brussels bar, suggesting that Britain's MPs would eventually be presented with a choice between voting for Theresa May's widely disliked withdrawal plan or accepting a delay to Brexit. Um, Terry, I, I do want to ask you both uh, shortly about the oddest places in which you've ever picked up a story tip but this strikes me uh, and I'd be interested to know if it strikes you as is so often the case with sort of leaks or gaffes or whatever as telling us not very much we didn't know or couldn't have guessed. Uh, I think um, the interesting one of the interesting things about this story, apart from you know, government negotiators don't go into a bar in Brussels where you know that everybody else is going to be going after the same, pretty much the same day's work that you've been doing, um, because you're all going to be in the same place. Uh, it was interesting that there had obviously been briefings from other sources during the day, which had been suggesting that you know Theresa May is seriously contemplating no deal. She is looking this in the face. She doesn't care about that now anymore. And then hearing these from from, from Brussels, uh, the negotiator saying, look, there is no way that no deal is going to happen. This is the situation that we're going to put people in. It will be deal versus, you know, extending the deadline. And so you're hearing, you know, it's, it's almost people trying to be too cunning at once. You know, they're trying to brief some sophisticated theory in one place and then somebody else is hearing a complete opposite from somewhere else. So you just think, you know... Yeah, get your story straight and try not to be too clever, clever. Uh, Robert, have you ever picked up a sensational scoop by overhearing something, you know, a a, a hostelry or something similar? Yes, there's a bit of that, but I've been told things when uh, under circumstances of mistaken (laughs) identity. Um, I I was told in Kunar province by an American colonel in no uncertain terms, because he thought I was working for MI6, that they'd been shelled steadily by the Pakistan army who were denying any support of the Haqqani network uh, Taliban and the poor colonel had been wounded three times already in the first three weeks of his tour and he, he just hadn't a clue who I was and that was that was very good another occasion uh, um, Easter uh, 17 
1998, I think it was, I was uh, very gently kidnapped by supporters of the Red Brigade. They hadn't got a clue, and I was held hostage, though I, although, although I didn't know it. But one very... That, that's a very gentle kidnapping, if very, nobody knows it's actually yeah, Oh, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we were to be the human shield if the carabinieri oh, came, to a, came, came to arrest them. I, I, I boast no more. Um, what was uh, absolutely stunning was a very senior Yugoslav general, a Croat, who absolutely hated President Tudjman, although he was the inspector general of his armed forces, deliberately got me out of a meeting with my translator to tell me in no uncertain terms that the Croats, contrary to what they'd been saying, were going to attack the Serb, Serb enclave of Knin, and I got it within three days. I reported it back uh, to my newspaper, to All and Sundry, who would listen, and of course, it, because they hadn't heard it before... <laughs> diddly squat and, and that is the most frustrating thing yeah. when you really get hold of something and I was told by the British Antarctic Survey when I'd taken all the trouble to go down in the great and gallant HMS Endurance the survey ship was told all about in no uncertain details about the hole in the ozone layer because chest thumping the British Antarctic survey, uh, survey which lives on diddly squat had alerted the Americans to it and really did discover it first and then the Americans came back to the news editor at the BBC said we haven't read this on writers. I had something similar. I, mean, I, I literally was in a Brussels hotel bar or lobby and I was quite a junior person at the time and I was like, the Prime Minister's official spokesman had said something and I sort of decided to take it on myself to ring in to the news desk at about, you know, midnight or something. And they well, you know, are you sure? Because we haven't seen this from anywhere else. And I'm like, no, honestly, they just told me that. And I can't remember now what it was. It was sometime in the 90s. I mean, people often got overheard, like, you know, Gordon Brown's spokesman, Charlie Whelan, was always heard briefing people in the Red Lion pub, which sort of everybody knew that he was doing and he knew that he was going to be overheard doing it um, you know I once also mistaken for a Labour Party member but it was a John Prescott speech so there was nothing really comprehensible out of that <laughs> <laughs> that, that does bring us to the end of today's show Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox thanks both for joining us today's show was produced by Marcus Hippie researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett more music next easy for you to say then at 1900 it's the entrepreneur with Daniel Bache. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.